Good morning. Like Cody said, it's Acts 27, 1 through 26. You can find that on page 936 of your pew Bibles. Paul sails for Rome. And, it was, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Eridemthium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go further. We sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there, the storm at sea. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, they lowered their gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night 
there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. This is the word of the Lord. Now join me in a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, we want to thank you for all that you have provided for us, for our lives, for our family, for the fact that we woke up today. But most of all, Lord, for your word that guarantees us our salvation. Let us draw closer to you. And Lord, please continue to watch over us, help us Learn what Cody has to preach. Open our hearts and open our minds, Lord, so that we can be like you. Amen. Undoubtedly, this week, as we have progressed from last Sunday to this Sunday over the past seven days, as we've gone along, if you will, the journey of life, undoubtedly something happened this week, probably something every day, that came as a surprise to you. That's the adventure, if you will, of life. You're not going to know what's going to take place tomorrow. Uh, as, you, as you even get in the car to travel from this place to back home or wherever you're else going this afternoon, you're going to encounter things that you did not expect. And it's going to surprise you. And that's what it is to not know what's going to come around the corner, is it's always a surprise because you don't know. Consider the child. I have a couple of children that do this. I don't know if you do. But they ask when they get in the car, where are we going? And what is the answer? We're going to the store. And the child is expecting then that once those wheels leave the driveway, where is the end point? The store. And we're going to go from point A to point B. And it's a perfectly reasonable explanation. They trust the parent. The parent says we're going to the store. Thus, we're going to the store. Now, from the parent side of things, the store is part of the journey, meaning we have to stop by the coffee shop in order to be able to get to the store. We have the hardware store to visit. We have the bill to pay. We have the place to visit. And then the store. And the child is in the car expecting the store and thinking, will the store ever get here? Now, this is not unlike what we have for us, if you will, with the Apostle Paul. God said, Rome is where you will go, Paul. He didn't tell Paul what would take place along the way, and that would require trust, just like the parent trusts, the child trusts the parent. God says heaven is the Christian's home and homeward bound you are as the Christian. And unlike Paul, he has actually told us what is along the way, something to this effect. Storms, fiery trials, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. And what's going to happen this week? We're going to be surprised when one or a number of those things happens to be along the way. Are you surprised with whatever's going on in your life? I know I am. 
This passage is for us this morning. Headed toward heaven requires trust in our heavenly father. Paul had it. We've been given the ability to have it. We have it. It might be weak at times. Why do we trust? Why do we trust that when the father says we're going to heaven, that we're actually going to get there? Because he's our father. Just like children trust their father or mother when father or mother says we're going to the store. The father has authority. That authority is felt by the child. That authority is indicating this person is in charge and is to be honored and is even to be trusted. Now, if you're looking at your passage this morning, we have a longer section, 26 verses. We're going to take it in its entirety, but as I stated in my introduction this morning or my welcome and announcements, we could take the whole chapter because it's one long story and we're breaking it in two just due to its length. And I think there's some helpful points for us to learn along, these, along the way as we look at these first 26 verses. Now, let me just, by way of trying to get through the amount of detail that we have here, give a few bits of explanation. First of all, you might notice that there are many characters in this passage, far more than we've had in other stories that Paul has been a part of in the book of Acts or Peter has been a part of in the book of Acts. We have a ship. We have ships, multiple. We have sailors. We have a ship's owner. We have a ship's captain or pilot. We have prisoners. We have passengers on that ship. We have soldiers on that ship. We have centurions. We have friends. We have Luke. We have a lot of actors in this scene, if you will. And you might just remember that we're on our way to Rome, which we'll discuss here in a minute. But they deliver to Paul, deliver Paul and other prisoners. So we don't know how many that is, but a fair number probably, to this centurion by the name of Julius. Now, Julius is a centurion. He's over 100 men. A cohort was six centurions or 600 men. We can think of even a legion. You've heard of that term. A legion is 10 cohorts or 6,000 men. And this gentleman was from the Augustan cohort. That is, this was a, a, the name of a group of 600 men after the Roman emperor Augustus. And it should be noted that this cohort is important. They did not choose uh, the lesser of the cohorts. They did not pick some guys who are, yeah, we, we can just get away with them doing this. They're sort of down the line in terms of importance. They picked something quite important to take Paul and these prisoners to Italy. Now, on this ship, we have, as I've stated, a number of people, but one is a friend, at least, Aristarchus. He's a Macedonian from Thessalonica. You can remember if you recall back to chapter 29, uh, chapter 19, verse 29, Aristarchus was Paul's traveling companion back in Ephesus, and he was dragged into the theater when the idle craftsmen there created a riot. They're bound for Italy, specifically Rome. Let me give you a few points of interest about Rome. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire. It was a city of such immensity from its architecture, including the pantheon erected by Augustus, to its incredible diversity of nations. There was Rome, Romans, 
There were Greeks. There were Jews. There were barbarians. All abiding in Rome. All within the culture of Rome. It was a display of power unlike anything else in the known world. The advanced technology included aqueducts to move water. Circuses or stadiums. Palaces. Temples. And yet for Rome, yet Rome for Paul was so much more. It was the the largest pulpit, if you will. At least by way of words and messages being able to spread rapidly throughout the Roman Empire by way of their advanced postage system, roads, and seaports. And yet Rome, much like the big cities of today, New York City or Chicago, Los Angeles, wasn't just lights, bells, and whistles. It was a place of some of the greatest moral decay in the known world. Thus Paul writing to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, talks about the depravity of this place. It seems that the cities that lead the country and the greatest advancements of technology are also the cities that can lead the country in the greatest moral decadence. Now, not only do we have Aristarchus on the way to Rome, we also have the writer Luke. You can notice even by way of reading this text this morning, a lot of we. We were there. We did this. Luke writing with a first-hand account. In Luke's gospel, you could state that Luke was writing about the gospel getting from Galilee to Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, he's writing about the gospel getting from Jerusalem to Rome. And it appears, either by way of companionship or being known as Paul's slave or maybe even as another prisoner, he's on this ship with Paul. Interestingly enough, because of the amount of detail, it's almost as if Luke the doctor has a hobby and that is his yacht. He seems to know quite a bit about what it is to sail. Uh, He writes with phenomenal detail about where they sailed, how they sailed. He uses nautical terms that we've not seen in the book of Acts to the point I had to I had to do some research on what is this term and what is that term and how do you do this. Spent quite a time trying to figure out what does all these terms mean? And I'll try to boil them down for you. But I think it's interesting to note this. There was a book entitled The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul written by a guy named James Smith in 1848. And he went to Malta where Paul is going to be shipwrecked in the coming verses. He studied all the winds. He was there during the winter when Paul would have been. He studied the currents. He was a soldier by trade. He'd been a yachtsman for 30 years. He writes this detail. He writes this account of all of that is taking place. And his conclusion was that Luke had to have been on board due to the accurate and immense amount of detail given in Luke's account. And yet, interestingly enough, funny enough, he says this. This guy was a landlubber. He didn't write it as a sailor. Quote, no sailor would have written in a style so like that, so little like that of a sailor. No man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts and less from actual observation. So he's there, and you can imagine him on this boat and the Sailors say, we're sailing under the lee of Crete. That's a good term. I'll write that one down. But he doesn't seem to quite 
know all that's actually taking place. This is a two-stage journey. It's a two-boat journey. Here's the first boat. It's a small vessel. You see that in verse 2. And embarking in a ship at Adraminium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. You should note they're sailing in the wrong direction. The wind's are already up. They're sailing to the west. They need to go to the east. This boat would probably have been quite small. It runs right along the shore all along the way. Under the lee, if you've read, is a nautical term. It refers to sailing under shelter. So it would have sailed under the shelter of the, of the shore. Not like under something, but as the winds would come over the shore and that shoreline would break up those winds to protect the ship. Verse 3, you see the first day they reached this place called Sidon. This was a fairly rapid first leg of the journey. It would normally take two plus days. The winds were obviously up. They get there in one day. Now in Sidon, Julius kindly allows Paul to go be with his friends. And Julius would be used by God more than once. This is the first time in his kindness and devotion to duty to protect and provide for Paul. And we shouldn't skip over Julius's kindness. Throughout the journey of life, uh, maybe in even the most difficult parts of our journey, our Heavenly Father kindly places people in our lives, believers or unbelievers, that are frankly just kind people. Uh, the next door neighbor, when you come out on the lawn, that greets you with, hey neighbor, and they're genuinely kind people. We should thank God for those genuinely kind people, believers or unbelievers. Imagine how much more difficult life would be to not have those kind people in our lives. They could all be raging against us. You could come out and have the neighbor who never says anything to you or better off, or, or worse off says something you don't like. And yet God in his kindness gives us kind people. We don't deserve them. Life would be more difficult without them. But he knows our every weakness and even the friendly greeting can be used to our encourage our souls. Through verse 5, we've gone two weeks by way of study of the passage. Verse 6, we get the second stage or the second boat. And this boat was, we're told, coming from Alexandria, that is Egypt, and it was loaded with grain headed for Rome. Uh, this is not a small boat. In fact, one piece of information I came upon is studying this, you can go determine it for yourself, has noted that boats uh, a Roman made like this particular one carrying grain would have been a, such a size that it wasn't until the beginning of the 19th century, a long time, that we'd actually see ships this size again. So these boats were uh, incredible in their architecture and how they were put together and their strength, the ability to hold together, the amount of people that would have been on this ship, as many as 300 loaded with grain, and Julius finds this ship and puts everyone on board. And you notice immediately, because of the weight of the ship, we sailed slowly, verse 7, and arrived with difficulty off Sanundus. The wind would not allow us to go further. They're sailing late in the year. You can see there in verse 9, we're told that the fast was already over. So this is probably the beginning of October. The fast can be determined that by this point, 
in our study of history to say it was October 5th of that year. November, you couldn't sail the Mediterranean Sea. Paul is a very experienced traveler, as many as 3,000 plus miles on the sea with his three missionary journeys, and he knows well that it is late in the year. And you see they make this place, verse 8, with difficulty called Fair Havens. They actually end up going south. There they shelter. And Paul is going to speak a couple times in our passage. And he speaks up here in verse 9 and says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury. I've been here before. I have sailed this ship. I have taken this type of journey. I have been on the sea in October. This isn't going to go well for us. And before we get upset at the ship's owner and centurion, would you believe a prisoner? You've got experience. You own the boat. Here's a centurion from Rome. He's in charge. Here's just a prisoner. And they don't take into account what he says. His experience level isn't thought about. I'm not sure we would do anything different. Probably not. And they go from this place. Now, we see the the mighty storm that comes up in verses 13 through 20. And I'll give a bit of detail as well here. But you notice what takes place as tempestuous wind called a northeastern. There's a few days of calm. They think they've got it made. They're going to try to sail to a port that is more uh, barricaded or more protected from the wind for the winter. They try to sail 40 miles. As soon as they take off, after a bit of time, this northeastern comes into play. And it's as bad as it sounds. Wind from the north wind from the east, and many think this could have been as powerful as a hurricane. Paul's going to run in front of this storm for a number of days. And you can see the precautions that they take place. Notice verse 16. They get to this small island running under the lee, therefore under the protection. The island's kind of blocking the wind. And they take five precautions. Uh, Note what takes place, verse 16. We manage with difficulty. Now we've got to see this right? There's nothing vital of importance here, but it is interesting to note we manage with difficulty. Apparently that Luke with his doctor hands got his hands a little calloused as they worked to pull up what was probably a rowboat, probably filled with water, and to get it onto the ship. And there they fasten it. Verse 17, the second precaution they make, they use supports to undergird the ship. Uh, that is, they would, would have taken cables or ropes and gone under the ship and tied it to the other side and probably around the ship to fasten it and hold it together. The third thing is they lowered the gear. That's probably an anchor. There in uh, Seritis, there was these dangerous sandbars. And so they probably lowered down this anchor to sort of be a break as they would travel close to them and slow them down from not wrecking on them. Fourth, they jettison the cargo. That's the next day. The first day they did the first three things. The next day they jettisoned the cargo. That is, they took the cargo and they threw it overboard. They're lightening the load. And finally, the day after that, the third day, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. That is, they probably took uh, ropes, sails, mast, all that was not needed, and they offload it to keep the ship afloat. And notice it says, with their own hands. They notice what is taking place. 
This is a last-ditch effort. And it gets us to the end of this section, verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, probably a 10 or 11 days or even more, and they are absolutely despairing for life. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. There is no more thought that these will be rescued. They've been in this storm. They cannot steer. There's no sun, no stars, which is how they would have steered back then. They can't see where they're going. All they know is wind. All they know is rain. All they know is waves. All they know is this ship is as light as it possibly can be, and they're going to go down. Now, I've just spent however many minutes giving background and helping you understand what's taking place to set up for what is the meat of this passage, which is Paul speaking here in verses 21 through 26. Uh, That is, the writer Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving us this detail, is describing for us a scene where there seems to be no way forward. Uh, It seems to be all hope is lost. It seems to be that you have Romans, you have uh, soldiers, you have experienced sailors who have seen these type of things, and there's no more hope. And Paul has been described in the book of Acts as all sorts of different things. He's been described as a persecutor. He's been described as a preacher. He's been described as a church planner, as a missionary to the Gentiles and to the Jews. And here in verse 21 through 26, we just have Paul, the prisoner. We just have Paul on board the ship. We just have Paul, another guy in a perilous place along the road of life where it seems as if nothing but a wreck awaits him. Notice what he says. Men... You should have listened to me and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Now, I would like to say he's just given the old, I told you so. But I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's simply stating, see, earlier when I warned you, I actually do have experience. He's appealing to his authority. He's appealing to his knowledge. He's appealing to, that, he's appealing to these men in a way that would help them understand what I'm about to say, I also understand. I told you I understood this situation. You didn't believe me. Would you please believe me when I tell you about this situation? This is what he says. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as has been told, as I have been told. This is not the first encounter we've had in the book of Acts with an angel or a vision. Just recently in chapter 23, Paul had a vision in the night where an angel of the Lord Christ himself appeared to him and encouraged him that he would go to Rome. Peter had a similar situation back in chapter 12 when he was imprisoned and an angel appears to help him. And his message to these men is is one line. Take heart, men. That's verse 22. 
and it's verse 25 as well. Take heart. Why? Because I believe in God. That's what Paul says. Take heart. I believe in God. Paul's faith is not simply for sunny days. It's also for the most perilous of storms. And as an aside here, I think it's, it's important for us to recognize that God is gracious. God is kind to give us storms that test our faith. God is kind to have put you in a storm that tests your faith. Now, I don't know the storm that's in your life. It could be great, it could be small, but he's very kind to do that. He's very gracious to do that. And who are we to tell a sovereign God, nope, 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 no thank you. My faith is strong enough at the moment. I don't need you to intervene in my life and put some pressure on muscles that need to be strengthened. Have you thought about the question, why this storm? Why does Paul have to go through this? Why can't he just sail to Rome nice and peacefully, sunny days on the deck, porpoises diving through the water, a little fishing here and there, right? Why not just ease? No. Why can't God do it safer? Why can't he do it more expediently for Paul? Isn't God wasting his time? I mean, we're, we're months. We're, we're going to end up six plus months going out of our way. Yes, it could have been expedient, much more expedient, but it could not have been better. This is why we must recognize that God is sovereign. We do not see the plans he has for us. And we have the idea, and we probably would be correct in terms of time, that there's more, a more expedient way to get from point A to point B. But there's not a better way than his way to get us from point A to point B. Uh, we, let's consider even the, the current situation of our day. What do we have? What is all around us? COVID-19. No other force can stay his hand. We must recognize that God is behind even COVID-19. And whatever we think about it, whether we think it's real, whether we think it's a conspiracy, whether we believe in masks, whether we don't believe in masks, whether we think they're helpful, unhelpful, throw it on the pile and recognize that it is the divine purposes of God that cannot be thwarted. And one must bow the knee to when God shows his hand. Paul certainly recognizes it. Paul tells the Thessalonians at the end of his first letter to them, chapter 5, verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit, period. Those verses are put together for a reason. Give thanks in all things with the exception of the worst times. No, that's not what he says. Are you giving thanks? Genuinely. Uh, not, not, not some just, okay, the pastor said I've got to give thanks. No, genuinely, are you giving thanks for what God is doing in your life by way of difficulty? And you might say, no, because I don't see anything to be thankful for. And you're probably right. But that's because you're not looking correctly. And so it might be that it's a, an afternoon or a few hours 
today, this week, where you pause and you examine where God has you and you begin with pen and paper or iPad or iPhone or whatever you need to be able to jot down what there is to be thankful for as you consider what he's doing in your life. And maybe it would be that you would not be praying as much now as you are if there wasn't difficulty. Maybe it's I wouldn't be in the word as much if it, wouldn't as, it wasn't as difficult. Maybe it would be I would not be seeking Christian fellowship as much if it was not as difficult. Maybe it would be I would not be as focused on the important things and less focused on the trivial matters if it was not as difficult. I don't know what it is for you. But there's plenty to be thankful for. Now, if you can believe it, that was an aside. So let's go back to this passage. What does Paul say? Verse 25, Take heart, men, for I have faith in God. The song says it well. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, His wounds for me shall plead, enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that the faith provided to Paul, the faith provided to you by grace, To trust the finished work of Christ upon the cross is a faith that at its root is rooted in the eternal and unchanging all-powerful God of the universe. And your faith is one of the great paradoxes of Scripture. That is, it's your faith and yet it needs to be a stronger faith and yet it's not your faith Because it's been given to you and it can't be given back. Wait a minute. It's not my faith. It's been given to me and I can't give it back. But it is my faith and it can grow stronger or weak. Yes, both. Let's use this simple illustration. Maybe it's helpful. You get the best present you could possibly imagine. And as I describe this present... You'll recognize it's from a male perspective. So ladies, fill it in, right? It's got wheels. It's got lights. It's got bells. It's got whistles. It, it does all sorts of the coolest of things. And it's one of the rare presents that you get that comes with batteries. Meaning you don't have to supply them. They're there. And it just works when you turn it on. And you play with it. And you enjoy it. And it provides such delight. And slowly, what happens? The batteries begin to drain. And the toy doesn't work as well. And you take that thing and you put it on the shelf. And it doesn't provide the enjoyment that it once did. Now, by simple illustration, the present is our faith. It's given graciously to us by God. The batteries, those are the means of grace that God provides us each day to strengthen our faith. And one can for a bit without those means of grace, residual grace, if you will, continue forward. And yet, because he loves you, you wake up one morning and your faith is going, whoa, this is dragging, right? It's not as strong. 
The solution is very simple. You avail yourself of the means of grace and begin strengthening your faith. You recharge the batteries in the very simplest of ways. I find it increasingly frightening. I have been a Christian now for 31 years. I find it increasingly frightening how many days I can go without availing myself of those means and fool myself that I'm, that I'm, that I'm doing just fine. I, I really can do a pretty good job of it. Brothers and sisters, read our Bible. Read your Bible. And if you can't listen to it that day, if you can't read it, listen to it that day. Listen to a sermon on your way to work. Pray. Download the songs that we sing each week. Play them at your house. Open your house. Do it at least once a month for hospitality. And ask your guest how God saved them. And you will be amazed at how our faith is strengthened by the lightest of weights. It doesn't take much before that faith is all of a sudden really strong again. What's the application here for us even as we think about what Paul is speaking, telling these men to take heart? And I think the application could be simple, as simple as this. Maybe you are the Paul in a situation. The one with stronger faith and you need to encourage those around you to take heart in the truth of God's word. And maybe you are of weaker faith and you need to seek out a Paul that can encourage you as your heart is weary of the battle loss and difficulty. And it's not a perhaps, but a certainty that each one of us, if, if we pause to think about it long enough, are concerned and thoughtful about situations in our lives, which really means we're sinfully worried and anxious about some storm in our lives and thus the certainty is that each of us needs the word to take to heart that our Father is aware and he's working his purposes and we should take heart in our particular storm. Now before we close, I want to go to one passage and I want us to just see a simple pointing of this passage to Christ if we've not already seen it. Let's take it by way of the sea and by way of a storm. Remember Jonah. Jonah's presence on a stormy sea in a boat was not helping. In fact, it was creating havoc for all those that were on the boat. Paul's presence in a boat on a stormy sea, was actually providing assured deliverance because of his faith. And we can know that there was another who was on a stormy sea in a boat who provided not havoc, who didn't assure of deliverance, but provided that which we need most of all, which is peace with our Heavenly Father. This is Christ. So let's go in our Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. You could go to one of the other Gospels and see this passage as well. But I have an affinity for Mark. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side and leaving the crowd they took him with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him and a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. The presence of Jesus Christ assures peace within, not necessarily without. Though in this passage is very clear, he has the ability to control all circumstances, even those without, not just those that are within. But he provides the peace where we need it the most. That is peace with the holiness of his heavenly father. Is not that the question for, of Christ to the disciples? Do you not have faith? Do you not recognize who my heavenly father is? Do you not recognize that I am the Christ? That Colossians 1, Paul will go on to write to say, is the one who holds all things together and created everything? Do you not have faith that I am the son of God? The question for us this morning, if we are in a lost state, that is we are not saved from our sin and from the wrath of God, is do you have peace with the Heavenly Father? You might have peace and you might be able to create it for a few moments within your own life, but do you have peace with God? You can. You can have peace that passes all understanding. You can have peace that allows one to sing, it is well with my soul. I don't know anybody here that has a perfectly well soul. We're sinners. And yet, we can sing it is well with our soul. How does that work? Because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. We've sung it before. God moves in a mysterious way and it states this. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. What we need for our particular difficulties, storms of life, is not necessarily for the storm to go away, because I can't promise that. No one can. But we need a better understanding. We need a stronger faith for the one who stands upon that storm and controls it. And just if you've forgotten, I would encourage you, I've been continually reminded in my Bible reading lately, go back to Exodus. So go back to Exodus. Go back to the God who can split the Red Sea. It's no light matter to take a body of water the size of the Red Sea and split it in half and create dry land down the middle. That wasn't an accident. That wasn't a, oh, we could replicate this. Go to the Jordan River and see the power of a God who can block up not a body of water, but a flowing river. The water's still coming. And he stops it. And he holds it. And he creates a place for the entire nation of Israel, as many as a million people to cross. That is your God. And we so quickly forget it. Which is why the Bible says, remember the Exodus? Remember what God has done? 
So let us look to him and let us take heart in our time of need. We don't have, we hear about, we don't get to see this morning the resolution of this story. We'll see that next week. Is Paul's statement of taking heart true? We know it to be, but we'll see it worked out next week. But even as we go through this coming week, may you be encouraged to take heart, have faith. Your God knows the storm that you are in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is good to be reminded from your word of your love for us, of your sovereign control of all things. Father, this is a word that is needed for me. Certainly a word that's needed for us. Father, may we be reminded even this week, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You know well all that goes around us, goes on around us. You know well what is going on with inside of us. And we pray that you would help us to submit to your way, to submit to the lessons you're teaching us, to submit to your leadership in our life. May we do it with thanksgiving and gratefulness. In the precious and holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen.